God, and we have a number of visitors tonight. We're really glad that you're here to be with us. Thank you for coming and joining with us in this time in which we honor the God of heaven. Appreciate the songs that were led tonight, especially as we think about giving our lives to Jesus, letting him have control of us, and giving him our all instead of a little bit or this or that. But tonight the lesson has to do with uh, the problem of self-justification, subtitled, When I Excuse Me, right? (laughs) When I Excuse Me. I find it really easy to excuse me. Don't you find it easy to excuse yourself? We find it more difficult to excuse others and show mercy, and we find it much more difficult to actually hold ourselves to the standard that God holds us to and to inspect our lives by his expectations for us instead of our own. And so we'll be exploring various aspects of the problem of self-justification. I'm a school teacher a little bit of the time, as you know, not much of one, but a little bit of the time I teach some school in the area, teach 11th graders. And um, I have found over the years that there are some students in my class that when I assign a grade for their work, they don't particularly like the grade that they get. And so they, I have had requests over the years several times, can't we grade this on a curve, on a curve, right? We have several other school teachers here you probably all know about grading on the curve. Students all love that because then they're just kind of compared to each other and not to an actual standard. When we come to the Bible, we find in the Bible a lot of people described as measuring themselves by others instead of the standard of God. They want to grade themselves on this curve. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians about some of the folks they had there who were wanting to be like him but really didn't measure up, so to speak, he says, we dare not compare ourselves or class ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Anybody can do okay on a curve, but it doesn't tell you where you really stand. And Paul is talking to people who would like to be up to the standard of God and the standard that in fact Paul himself was setting with his life, but they weren't measuring themselves by God's standard or even by the standard that Paul had laid down for them. They were just measuring themselves by themselves. Oh, we're doing great. We're doing great. We're good. We're as good as Paul. Not by comparing ourselves to what he's doing, but just by comparing ourselves to ourselves. That apparently is what they come up with. In Luke chapter 16, and we'll be looking in Luke a little bit, so if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn over there. Um, There's an interesting discussion that Jesus has leading up to Uh, the text that I'm going to really focus on with you for a few minutes. But in Luke 16, Jesus is talking about the problem of material things in this world and how God's people ought to view material things in this world. And he tells the parable, we call it sometimes the parable of the unjust steward. Uh, And I won't tell all of that, but just to say his main point is, what are you going to do with material things, disciples of mine? Are they going to be the most important thing to you? Or are you going to use them to the glory of God. That's kind of where he's going. So he winds that up, uh, and he says in verse 12 of, of Luke 16, If you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, be loyal to the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
So the Pharisees are sitting there listening to this. A lot of things are said about the Pharisees, and I think people who study Scripture sometimes misconstrue what their problems were, what the problems of the Pharisees were. Uh, I'm not going to get into all that right now, but one problem that's typically not associated with them is the problem that Jesus is about to uncover. But I will say this about the Pharisees. They have the reputation among us today as people who, wow, they were just all about the law, right? And they just, they had the standard, and if you didn't meet that, you were out. They were just legalists. That is entirely not true. (laughs) Their problem was not legalism. They had several problems, hypocrisy, self-righteousness, all kinds of problems, but Actual legalism was not their problem. They would rather keep their traditions than actually what the code of God said to do. Jesus points that out over and over again. They were traditionalists, not legalists. That's a big difference. But if you really think about what they, what they were saying and who they were and what they accepted and why that they, they thought so, so grandly about themselves, it wasn't because they were measuring themselves by the standard of God, it was because they were measuring themselves by the standard of themselves. They were the original, we're grading on a curve here. That's exactly the problem. And Jesus points it out. Look what happens in the next couple of verses. The Pharisees, when they hear Jesus talk about the problem of materialism, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, you never would have picked that out as one of their problems, right? (laughs) Who thinks of the Pharisees? Oh, their problem is they're lovers of money. That's what, that's what the Bible says. The problem is they're lovers of money. They heard these things and they derided him. So he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. What's the problem? Self-justification. You justify yourselves before men God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That just kind of cuts to the chase there, doesn't it? And so we see with them, as with uh, many today and ourselves, if we're not really cautious about it, that they wound up grading themselves on a curve, morally, spiritually. And when this happens, Moral excellence or virtue is not, no longer your goal. That's not what you're striving for when you start to grade, your, grade yourself on a curve by the standard of yourself. You're, not, you're no longer striving for moral excellence. You're no longer striving for the virtue that God holds His people to live. But you're merely striving for the satisfaction of being better than most in your own mind. And if you're better than most in your own mind, then according to you, me, if I do it, I'm okay. Isn't that true? That so often, the standard by which we judge ourselves is I'm better than most. And so I'm okay. I guarantee you that not one time in all the Bible Does God judge anybody on the standard? You're better than most, so you're okay. It never happens. 
there are a lot of areas where we want to justify ourselves because we're better than most. We justify our materialism as, in fact, the Pharisees did. We live in a very materialistic society. We have a lot of material things. We spend a lot of time with our material things. Earning more money so we can have more material things. Concerning ourselves about material things. And you might say, well, Steve, well, yeah, we, we, we do that in our culture, but you know, we're, we're church members here, right? We had a big contribution this morning. You know, we're, we're givers. <laughs> and so that's not us. We're, we're, why, we're better than most. Right? <laughs> what does that mean? Nothing. Doesn't mean anything. We're singing a couple of songs about giving all of ourselves to God, letting Him mold us and make us and use us for whatever He wants. And generally, that should be our attitude, and hopefully I think is our attitude, most of you that I know. But let's be cautious about materialism. Have we given all of what we have to God in the sense that He can use it for whatever He needs it for? It's really not ours. It's all His. And I want to use it to glorify Him. That's a whole lot different idea than well, I'm better than most in my giving. That's giving yourself. And that's the standard God asks for. In fact, when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is writing to the Corinthians about their giving. And he says, you know, the people in Macedonia are really doing a good job. They're actually doing better than you guys, but he doesn't say they're, they're good because they're better than you or because they're better than most. He says they're good because first, before they started giving, they gave themselves to the Lord. There's the standard. There's the standard. We need to think about materialism. We need to think about the degree of commitment that we have and misplaced priorities. There's an interesting story, parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 14. Turn back a couple of chapters if you're with me in Luke. And you might notice in verse uh, 16, Jesus talks about a man that gave a great supper and he invited many. Sent his servant at supper time saying to those who were invited, come for all things are ready. They with all, all with one accord began to make excuse. The first said to him, I bought a piece of ground. I must go see it. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. They all had reasons, excuses for not doing what they should have been eager to do. Now, again, this is a parable. It's just a story. The feast obviously represents not a moral imperative, but an opportunity that God is giving. An opportunity to come and have fellowship with Him and enjoy His blessings and participate with Him in a communion, if you will. They don't want to go. They'd rather do something else. 
They have important things to do in their lives. One's bought a piece of ground. One has some animals he's got to see after. Another one has a wife he has to see after. Other things to do. Other priorities. And, and the lesson of this story, among other things, is one of priorities. These individuals all began to make excuse. Their commitment was not what it should be to the things of God. Their priorities were misplaced. And so it is sometimes in our lives today. Jesus, as the parable unfolds and as he teaches on it, he says in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my my disciple. And he talks about the importance of him being the first priority above family, the wife you married, the oxen that you own, the piece of land that you bought, whatever else it is. If I'm not first, you can't follow me. You won't follow me. I have to be first. Is that how we judge our priorities? Well, my priorities are higher than so-and-so's. That doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. Are they what they ought to be? Is Christ first in my life? Is Christ first in my life? Sometimes we rationalize blatant disobedience and rebellion against God. This happened right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. You know the story. Adam and Eve were told they could eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree that grew in the middle of the garden, the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, the serpent comes and tempts Eve and she eats of it and gives to her husband and he eats of it. And God confronts them. And he asked them in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 11, Have you eaten of the, from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now, that's a simple yes and no question, isn't it? Yeah? <laughs> yes or no? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? Well, it's like this. Adam says, The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave to me of the tree and I ate. Now that's not a yes or no answer. He admits eating. But it's not as bad as you think, God, because really it's not my fault. Because the woman that you gave me, she gave me, and so really it's almost kind of your fault. And then the woman says, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. I didn't know what I was doing. I was tricked. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. Of course, this story has been examined pretty close to since the beginning of time, right? And um, we notice the buck passing, the excuse making of Adam and Eve. But we know it's not going to wash with God. What's interesting about it to me is that it seems to be the way of humans to measure, to pass blame away from ourselves. Plainly, in Adam and Eve, they both believe that in some way they are not fully to blame and should not bear the full responsibility for their transgression. 
Now that's self-justification. And we do that all the time. We rationalize why it is that what I did is not as bad as you might think. And we don't want it to be as, as bad as we think God might think. So we rationalize it, and again, we excuse ourselves. Had Adam and Eve been the judge in the garden, either one of them, they'd have let one another off the hook, right? That's humanity right there. We love to let each other off the hook, and especially ourselves. God was not so inclined. Sin cannot be ignored. His will, we cannot pretend, is something that's malleable, changeable, or open to our whims of desire. When we go to 1 Samuel chapter 15, there's another great example, of course, in Scripture, and many of you will be familiar with this. King Saul is told to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites, uh, not leave man or beast or anything, just wipe them out. God had a reason for that, and we won't, again, touch on all of that, but he had a reason for telling Saul to do that. Samuel, the prophet and judge of the day, um, after Saul goes and attacks the Amalekites, confronts him. Chapter, 13, chapter 15 and verse 13. Samuel went to Saul and said to Saul, and Saul said to him rather, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I've done what God told me to do. Samuel said, What is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? In other words, I'm hearing a lot of animals here, Saul. Where are those coming from? Saul said, well, they brought from them, from the Amalekites, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, but the rest we've utterly destroyed. So (laughs) you see where this is going, right? Actually, everything wasn't utterly destroyed. I did what God said do, but yeah, we have these sheep and we have this oxen and we have this other stuff that we were supposed to utterly destroy, but the people wanted to do that. So, you know, all is well that ends well. It's all good. Samuel said to Saul, be quiet and listen to what God has to say. And Samuel goes on to tell Saul how extremely disappointed God is in him. That his problem is pride and rebellion. God had told him to go and destroy the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed. Verse 18, he tells him. Verse 19, he asks, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed. Notice, this is always fascinating to me. comes back really the third time. I have obeyed. No, you haven't obeyed. You haven't obeyed at all. But he says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and, and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Notice again how the blame is shifting. The people did it. I'm their king, but the people did it. I'm not responsible. And then they did it really, Samuel, to sacrifice to your God. So again, kind of God's fault here. They wouldn't have done it had they not wanted to sacrifice to God. That's fascinating, isn't it? How we can wind around in our minds 
when we do something blatantly against the express will of God, but it's somebody else's fault and it's God for asking us to do something anyway. But it's not our fault. And such is the twisting of the human mind. We deceive ourselves into thinking that unbridled words are consistent with our religion. James will write in James chapter 1 and verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he is righteous and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. This one's religion is useless. You ever known somebody who was a Christian who used uh, curse words? Took God's name in vain? Yeah. Folks justify themselves for that in their minds or they wouldn't do it. Well, you know, I was mad. Or I didn't think anybody would hear. Or who says that's wrong? Show me in the Bible where that's wrong. Of course, we could show you in the Bible, but that wouldn't make any difference to a person who's rationalizing like that. We gossip, say things that we shouldn't about others. We use white lies to justify ourselves in our minds and in the sight of others. Of course, I'm using the word white lie there. You know a lie is a lie, right? But there are some that we think are acceptable. The one who is righteous in the eyes of God, who is really measuring up to God's standard about the words that we speak, is someone who sees God's standard as a part of his life. He is bridling his tongue all the time according to the will expressed in the word of God. So in Psalm 15 and verse 1, the psalmist asks, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? In other words, who's going to live with God? Who's going to have a relationship with God? Here's who. He answers his own question. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, The Apostle Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 4, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for edifying, that it may impart grace to the hearers. That's a command. And so in all of these ways, and many more we could look at, we commonly self-justify. We convince ourselves that the faults we see in others are not the faults, are not faults if they are in us. I was talking about the Pharisees to begin with. That was kind of their thing, right? That's what a hypocrite is. Somebody who's got the same faults somebody else has, but they're not faults when they're in me. Jesus points this out over and over again in dealing with them. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 2. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, you're inexcusable. You're inexcusable, O man, whoever you are that judge... Now, this is kind of a, if you stopped right here, you'd say, see, you're not supposed to judge anybody. (laughs) That's not where he's going. You're inexcusable, whoever you are, that judge 
For whatever you judge another, in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. That's exactly what Jesus teaches when he says, judge not. He's not saying, never judge anybody for anything. What he is saying is, what? You got a log in your own eye, you better get that out before you look to see the speck in somebody else's eye. He might, he might need some help getting that speck out, but you better check that log first. Paul's saying the same thing. You are inexcusable when you judge somebody else and you are doing exactly the same thing, but you won't judge yourself for that. You won't condemn yourself for that. When you are doing exactly in principle or in fact the thing that you are condemning in others. And I've said this, uh, I, I know in passing several times, I'm about to say it in passing again. You want to get a good look at this in, in real life illustrations. And if I, could, if I would start with real life illustrations on this tonight, we would not be, we would not be leave here until next week at this time. Because there are so many of them and all you have to do is watch the 6 o'clock news. Okay? It doesn't matter what party you like, Republican or Democrat or anything else. <laughs> all the time. We've got one side in our culture, in politics or some other aspect of our culture, pointing out the problems, all the things that the other side's doing wrong, and they're doing exactly the same things. Exactly. As I said, I'm not going to list one illustration, but I could list 10,000. I hope you all are aware of that. That's how a world given over to humanism and worldliness, that's how it operates. We fool ourselves when we convince ourselves that the same faults others have when they're in us aren't really faults. Our self-justification will not change the judgment of God. God weighs us by His standard. His Word is truth. We will be judged by the words of Jesus. Jesus says in John 12 and verse 48, The ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Proverbs 16 and verse 2 says, and Proverbs 21 and verse 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. The Lord will judge us truly inside and out by a standard that He has laid out clearly and perfectly in His Word. God condemns those who put evil for good and good for evil and are wise in their own eyes. And it's that last part of it, being wise in our own eyes, that I think is really the core problem when it comes to self-justification. Our problem is pride. The cause of self-justification is pride. You say, well, how so? Listen to the description of an evil man from Psalm 36 and verse 1. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. Who does that? A proud and evil person. He flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. I find out my iniquity, but it's not that bad. I flatter myself about that. I justify myself. 
The New English translation has there, an evil man is rebellious to the core. He does not fear God, for he is too proud to recognize and give up his sin. He won't acknowledge it. He's too proud to do that. It leads, again, to self-justification. There was a book that was written a few years back. It's entitled, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. And, of course, it's an exposure of this whole problem of self-justification. One of the things that's talked about in that book is that the main problem isn't that we aim to deceive others about what we've done. The main problem is that we aim to deceive ourselves. And we do that because we can't face ourselves in the mirror because we're too proud to see who we really are. We can't take that. And so we make up an image a template that we see ourselves through where we can accept ourselves and live with ourselves. Otherwise, we think, it's too embarrassing. I couldn't live with myself if I really faced my sins, if I really faced my shortcomings. And so I have to justify them. I have to rationalize them. I have to make some way You know, the real thing with Adam and Eve in the garden is that they did not want to look in the mirror. Isn't that right? They didn't want to see themselves as they were, as what they'd done. It's human pride. I don't want to see myself with sin and all of its ugliness. We'll get back to that in a little bit. But I want to tell you that pride can be overcome by listening to correction and counsel. This doesn't sound like it's something that would work, but I guarantee it'll work. And that is, if you'll just be willing to sit and listen when someone's trying to counsel you from the Scriptures, when someone's rebuking you, if you'll just open yourself up to listen to that, all of a sudden, pride will go away. Just listen to God's Word, His counsel, His rebuke, And it will take care of it. See, pride creates this overwhelming aversion to shame and public embarrassment. The devil wants you to think that self-justification and excuse-making is the only way to avoid that embarrassment. Like he did with the Pharisees. Like he did with Adam and Eve. Proverbs 30 and verse 12 says that there is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, but it's not washed from from its iniquity, from its filthiness. A generation that sees itself as pure, but it's not. It wants to see itself as pure, but it's not. Again, the only real path to limiting this embarrassment and shame, to dealing with pride and getting it out of our ways, out of our way, is to acknowledge the problem to ourselves first and then to others. Listen to the wise man. Proverbs 13 and verse 18. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. You want honor? See, we think that, oh, if I, have to, if I listen to this rebuke, if my, if my evil deeds is exposed, if I really take that to heart, oh, it's going to be so shameful for me. The opposite is true. The opposite is true. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. And Proverbs 15 and verse 32, 
He who disdains instruction despises his own soul, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. It's really better for us to listen to the judgment of God's word, the rebuke of others when they're sincerely trying to help us do better, correct a fault. Ultimately, it's way better. So, I don't want to get into everybody's politics, you know that. But, have you ever, like yesterday, (laughs) or the day before, been paying attention to the news and one of our one of our leaders is talking about some issue and how they're right and the other side is wrong and they're just being so unfair in the whole discussion about it. And again, they're as guilty as the other side of the thing they're usually accusing them of. And I don't know about you, I just look at that and I just say, wow, that's just embarrassing to watch. Somebody who, who so clearly wants to hide <laughs> truth and wants to hide the reality of bad things that they have done. That they just can't even acknowledge that it's there. That's what's shameful. The person who will acknowledge that it's there, that's not shameful. Everybody sees it's there, people. Right? Do you not see through the politicians? I think we do. It's the same with our lives. God sees through you. A lot of friends and neighbors see through you. If they know you've done it, they know you've done it. There's no sense in pretending like it didn't happen and excusing it away. Just listen. That will enable you to see your need to confess and forsake your sins. He who covers his sins will not prosper. Whoever confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. And that is what we need. And that is the answer to the problem of pride causing self-justification when it comes to our sins. Because the only way that we can really get free of the humiliation of sin is to have it forgiven. We need mercy, not self-justification. And we're only going to get that. We're only going to get that by confessing it. So let me ask you a question tonight. You can think about this for a second. Who's the worst sinner you know? Who's the worst sinner you know? The self-righteous and the self-justifier are often the same person. It was true of the Pharisees. The self-righteous and the self-justifier are the same person. Neither one would ever consider identifying themselves as the worst sinner they know. Right? A Pharisee is not going to say, I'm the worst sinner I know. Somebody else is the worst sinner, not me. If you take two people, say they're students. I was talking about being a teacher. Say you have, I have two students. And um, I'm giving a test. And they... Both of them, somehow, maybe I step out of the room, they have an opportunity to cheat on the test. It's a hard test. I don't give hard tests, but let's pretend like I do. So they have an opportunity to cheat on the test, and one cheats, the other one does not. 
they get their grade. The one who cheated gets a good grade. He or she justifies themselves. Well, the test was too hard. I didn't really have time to study. It was a pop test anyway. You know, all of this, all of these reasons. I, I, was, I, I had a basketball game the night before, whatever it was. And so that person justifies themselves. The other person didn't cheat. They also made a good score, perhaps. In fact, maybe they got 100 on the test. They didn't need to cheat. They're saying to themselves, I didn't cheat. I am so much better than my classmate that cheated. Self-righteous. Self-justifier. Which one's actually the worst sinner? Who's the worst sinner you know? Well, the worst sinner that I know personally is me. Paul said the same thing. Self-righteousness and self-justification are companions. We are all under sin. All of us. And need our Savior. We need mercy. Let's just own it. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.9, Paul is talking about this grand, who's worse, Jews or Gentiles? You know, well, the Jews, that's a, that was a no-brainer. The Gentiles are way worse. Paul shows that Jews and Gentiles are all sinners. Romans 3 and verse 9, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Paul's answer to the question, who's the worst sinner, must, I think, in some way be ours as well. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. When we own that, self-justification's out the window. It's no longer a problem. God's grace solves it. So what about it tonight? You have a problem with sin? I know you do, if you're a human being. You've taken that to Jesus and gotten forgiveness. You need to confess it, own it, acknowledge it. If you're a Christian, do that. Pray for forgiveness and you'll be forgiven. Maybe there's somebody here tonight that's never admitted to themselves their sin and their need for Jesus and never named the name of Jesus and been baptized for the remission of your sins so they could be washed away in the blood of Christ. You can make that commitment tonight. We'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.